0: The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D.
1: Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterward, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Lawrence Wright, whose new book, Going Clear Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief, has just been published by Alfred A. Knopf. Lawrence, thanks for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it.
0: It's a pleasure, June. Thanks for having me.
1: Surely. So, how did you come to write this book?
0: Well, I was interested in Scientology for years, but i didn 't know how to tell the story i didn 't have a central character mm-hmm. and uh, Then, when Paul Haggis, this uh, academy award winning writer and director, dropped out of the church after thirty four years, I thought he might be a way in He would be a way of telling a very complicated story, mm-hmm. but a sympathetic figure in the middle of all this
1: even though that story I know was very popular, I remember reading it feverishly when it appeared. It must have been daunting to write this book. Apart from anything else, Scientology is known to be litigious, and according to your book and your reporting, journalists who've written investigative pieces about the church have themselves been investigated and and perhaps harassed by the church.
0: Yeah, there's a long history of vindictive behavior towards critics, reporters, and defectors uh, by the church. It's quite shameful. I've spoken to some of those former reporters, like Paulette Cooper, who was one of the very first to do a kind of account of uh, Scientology in the '70s. Mm-hmm. She was framed by the church. They uh, uh, pretended, you know, that someone posing as her uh, threatened the life of the president. Uh, the church uh, produced letters, bomb threats that they said that she had signed and actually had her fingerprints on. Mm -hmm. And it turned out they had gotten her fingerprints through another means. And uh, she was indicted. She might have gone to prison. She considered suicide. She was, you know, and if the FBI raided uh, Scientology headquarters in 1977 and discovered a file titled Operation Freakout, which was designed to either get Paulette Cooper incarcerated or locked up in a mental institution. And that was uh, they an example of what they did to one of the very first reporters. Mm-hmm. Other reporters have also suffered a considerable amount of harassment.
1: But you persevered, and still, though, you must have faced some reporting challenges. Again and again in the book, you make statements and then you note that the church denies this version of events. You could only talk to people who had left the church, who might have their own biases. How did you handle those limitations?
0: Well, I gave the church every opportunity. I mean, again and again, innumerable times, I asked for the opportunity of speaking to people at higher levels, executive levels of the church, and I was denied that opportunity. So I gave them their chance to get their perspective on, and despite their hostile and dilatory responses, we continually fed them fact-checking questions Mm -hmm. and gave them the opportunity to get their perspective on the record. Oftentimes, those responses were evasive and useless, but at least we gave them the opportunity. And so if they wrote a denial, we would acknowledge that.
1: Now, let's start, as you do in the book, by defining Scientology. You say that, although it's difficult to say with any accuracy since the church doesn't release membership figures, around 25,000 Americans consider themselves Scientologists, Its financial resources appear to be greater than many religions with far more adherents, however. Why is that?
0: Well, they've got maybe a billion dollars. In liquid resources, mostly in offshore accounts, according to former members, Mm. that's a lot. The Catholic Church would have a hard time coming up with a billion dollars in cash. Scientology is a small organization, but it has managed to milk its adherents of tremendous amounts of sums.
1: Now, this is a very wide-ranging book, but in a way, there are three main subjects. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, David Miscavige, yep. who took control after Hubbard's death, and Tom Cruise, who is the most famous Scientologist in the world right now. We'll get to those last two later. But tell us briefly about Hubbard, which I know is a challenge since he was such a larger-than-life character.
0: Wasn't he? Oh, <laughs> he sure was. man. I You're always blessed as a writer when you've got an incredibly intriguing charismatic figure to write about Mm -hmm. and uh, Hubbard is far more interesting a figure than I think most people credit yes he invented parts of his narrative or much of his narrative but he really was a very interesting figure he was a dashing adventurous man and uh he holds uh, the record uh, according to guinness books of world records for the number of books published more than a thousand books he he wrote it and as i'm a writer too i have to take my hat off to him uh, this is only my eighth book i've got a long way to go to catch up with him it, it, what was intriguing to me about hubbard are the two competing narratives of his life, one, the one that he and the church tell about who he was and what he accomplished, and the other is what the facts uh, that we can discover actually demonstrate. They're very much at variance, but they're quite fascinating. Both of these stories are quite intriguing.
1: Indeed they are. He was clearly incredibly charismatic because for all of the flaws or the contradictions in his character, he clearly... Drew people to him not only in numbers but also with a very powerful connection.
0: Yes, he was charismatic, he, he was a droll, humorous talker. He had a, a, a wide ranging uh, ability of, you know to call upon uh, literature and psychology and stuff like that. So much of that was self educated mm-hmm. so you know he, he was certainly a spellbounding figure, and he drew lots of people to him, especially young people. Uh, who were looking for answers. And he proposed to have the answers for every question.
1: I was going to say that one of the flaws of Hobbes' creation was that Clears, um, which in the Scientology parlance, I believe, are the sort of the, the enlightened figures right. who were supposed to possess extraordinary physical powers, and yet he was a man who did not appear to have extraordinary physical powers. He was charismatic, but physically he was he was obese, he had a lot of issues with his his health. But then as I use that word flaws, I realize that when we talk about belief, when we talk about faith, so much is not rational. And that is something that you try to sort of interrogate in your book, right?
0: Many people have diagnosed Hubbard as being insane in one way or another, and he himself worried about his own mentality. But um, I see him as being a, a kind of... Uh, healer in a way, in a almost a, a, a Native American fashion. Mm. You know, he he went through, um, and he came from Montana, so he mm. had this part of his tradition uh, of the medicine man and this sort of thing. But you you know, many of these people, according to anthropologists, uh, are schizophrenic, and in our society they would seem to be crazy, mm. and uh, yet they go on a journey. And in many ways, the mythic journey that L. Ron Hubbard created for himself is like one of those journeys. That his his story, his narrative, is that he was wounded in the war, crippled, blinded, and unable to be helped by modern medicine. Yet he healed himself through these powers that he developed and these insights he developed on human nature. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote this book, Dianetics, to heal others and so that's the narrative that he mm-hmm. that he brings forward. And that's the crux of what the Church of Scientology is based upon.
1: Well, as you mentioned, Dianetics was a huge success, runaway success, sold many, many copies. It kind
0: of established the category mm. of self-help books in post-war America, which, uh, you know, all these books that followed tried to emulate the success of Dianetics.
1: And yet... It kind of got away from him. He couldn't control it.
0: No, that's a, that's a good point. He, he made a lot of money. Sure. But the the problem with Dianetics is that you could do it yourself. He had no brakes on the controls, and that's one of the reasons when he established Scientology, he decided to keep all the control.
1: And how did he do that? He made it to religion. Yeah. That was his choice, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And partly it was for the tax benefits, apparently, yeah. but... A religion offers someone a chance to almost have the power of a totalitarian ruler, right?
0: Yeah, uh, it's not exactly that Hubbard is worshipped in Scientology, although he's treated like a deity mm. in many ways. But his words are scripture; all those thousand books, so that there's a tremendous amount to draw upon.
1: He's considered infallible in a way.
0: Yes. Yeah, he's, he, 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 you know, everything that he says, in fact, that's one of the problems the church has is, you know, what he says in 1950, which may come out of a different culture, you mm-hmm. know, is still a part of the church's culture today. And they have a hard time defending some of his statements about uh, homosexuals, for instance, mm-hmm. or something that might have been more acceptable at that time, but are less so now.
1: One of the parts of Scientology that I think is most shocking to people outside the organization is the Sea Org. In a way... Sea Org members are the church's clergy, but they sign a contract aligning themselves with the Sea Org for a billion years, and they receive very low wages, $50 a week or so. And they can be assigned almost anywhere in the world, it seems. And many people join Sea Org as children. It's a very difficult organization for outsiders to understand, I think. Something and that was a
0: part of it that disturbed and surprised me the most is the recruitment of children sometimes at a very young age into this organization and um they are exploited they, they don't get their education, they, you know, their, their opportunities for life outside the Sea Org recede uh, with every year they spend in it, so that many of these people that have escaped from the Sea Org, literally escaped, you know, and as adults, they have nothing to call upon. They've got no education, they've got no money, they may not have driver's licenses or passports, they may not have any friends or family outside of the organization. It's very difficult for them to leave. And then if they do leave and actually get away, the church presents them with a bill, oftentimes, usually, for hundreds of thousands of dollars for services that they say that they've been given. So here they are. They're poor. They, they're friendless. And they're in a world they know very little about. And they're also punished,
1: it seems. They're put and on –
0: A rehabilitation project force.
1: And so they are essentially isolated within this world. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes you describe when individuals are offered opportunities or they're sent to do something outside of this isolation. They're given money. They're given tickets somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they don't run away. They stay. They they go I back know. to punishment. One
0: of the reasons part of the subtitle is the prison of belief uh, because they believe that, you know, aside from the – The many factors I cited already, their impoverishment, the lack of familiarity with the world, the fact that all their friends are inside this organization, they believe that Scientology holds the key to their salvation. Mm -hmm. So we have the example, for instance, of Mike Rinder, who was the church's chief spokesperson, and he was confined in one of these re-education camps for years. But occasionally they would bring him out, put on a tuxedo and fly him to London, you know, to uh, oversee uh, like a a Scientology event and then he'd go back into confinement. One day he didn't.
1: And in fact as well as saving their own souls uh, to use another church's terminology, they also believe they're saving the planet.
0: Yes, they do. That's their mission. Saving the planet, they mean clearing. It's a very powerful word in Scientology. To be clear means to have freed your mind of all the neuroses and fears and things that are causing you to be something less than a perfect being. So, Going Clear, the title is, is, it's the first major step in Scientology when you've achieved that level, and the goal of Scientology is to bring everyone to that level, and that way um, humankind will be saved, and we'll all be aware of our eternal state of, as, as, you know, immortal beings, and that will be the salvation of the planet.
1: Before we get to our own salvation, let's pause for a moment to give away some books first i want to let you know that this month the afterword is sponsored by audible.com they're offering a free audiobook to any u.s listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the Daily Audio Digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. I'm happy to say that Going Clear is available unabridged on Audible, where it runs 17 hours and 27 minutes. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Going Clear, Lawrence's earlier Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, or one of the other books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit, audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Knopf has very kindly given us four copies of Going Clear to give away to listeners and Lawrence has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the word clear giveaway in the subject line to Slate afterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, February 8th, 2013, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at Mm gmail.com talking with Lawrence Wright, author of the new book, Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. As we were saying earlier, young people are given extraordinary responsibilities in Scientology. They can sometimes rise to senior positions in the hierarchy at a very young age, but they don't seem to go to school much of the time. Why aren't Sea Org members subject to laws about compulsory education or minimum wage, or when they're held in the hole or one of the other Scientology ships? Why isn't that kidnapping or human trafficking?
0: Well, these are questions that you might well ask the authorities. Uh, I talked to, you know, say there was a young man named Daniel Montalvo, and he joined the Sea Org when he was 11 years old. Uh, Part of his duty uh, was go to Clearwater, where their spiritual headquarters is, and help take the asbestos out of this old hotel. He says that they didn't give him any protective clothing. One of the things that he did while he was in Clearwater is that uh, he guarded Tom Cruise while he was there getting auditing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wasn't the only child there, by the way. And I just wonder, you know, if it ever occurred to Mr. Cruise when he looked at these kids, you know— where are their parents why aren't they in school but after that he went to California
1: we're talking now about Daniel Daniel Daniel
0: Montalvo Montalvo, and um, he was working two jobs at a time for uh, the Sea Org and at night he was working at Bridge Publications where they published many of their their very luxurious books and his job was to cut the notches mm-hmm. in the books you know like in an unabridged dictionary the right. thumb notches and it was a machine that has a very sharp blade to go you know and you do it manually right. and he cut off his finger they took him to the hospital and they made him say that it was a skateboarding accident but he's 16 years old at this point he's been to you know for years Mm -hmm. working for the church, getting only uh, education on Saturday. The laws in the state of California, it appears to me, prohibit children from working around heavy machinery, and they're supposed to be in school. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand. You you ask me. The answer is I don't understand how they get away with that.
1: One of those young members uh, was David Miscavige, who was an auditor at 12. Um, Mm -hmm. Auditor is It's almost like a therapist, again, to me as an outsider. It kind of seems that way. When he was only 12, one of the youngest um, in the history of the church, he left school at 16 to join the Sea Org. And as L. Ron Hubbard became isolated and sick, Miscavige's powers increased until he became the de facto leader at age 25. How did Miscavige achieve that?
0: By purging the competition. He had an alliance with... um, several higher-level executives, but uh, he was, to be honest, very determined and Mm. very competent. Hubbard had a great deal of confidence in him. He would place him in charge of um, uh, a lot of missions that even at a very, very young age, he would go in and and shape things up, and uh, he had a reputation Mm. for being the man to get things done. Sea Org, at its top level, was not composed of such dynamic individuals. So Miscavige gradually pushed them aside, and he consolidated his power, sometimes physically, expelling people that had been close to Hubbard, the people that had been his closest advisors were kicked out of the Sea Org, Mm. kicked out of Scientology, or locked up in re-education camps. And gradually, there was no one left.
1: And... He's held on to power for, what, 30 years?
0: Yeah, so. unchallenged. You know, one of the other things that puzzles me about the church is that, you know, they gained uh, IRS exemption as a religion in 1993, mm. partly, I think, as a result of the 2,400 lawsuits that they launched against the IRS and individual IRS members on the part of the church and Scientologists. And part of the deal was that those suits would all be dropped. Mm. So the IRS gave them the exemption along with that tremendous latitude to engage in some of these practices. It seemed so puzzling. But part of the deal is there's supposed to be layers of accountability. Mm. You know, this is a a religious organization, just like a charity or something like that. You're supposed to have levels of accountability. Yet many of the top executives of the church – he confined into this place called the hole mm-hmm. on this base in Southern California in the desert. Where is accountability there? You know, if 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 there's anyone that can say, "Stop, David Miscavige, I don't care to do this," where is that person?
1: Well, uh, as you mentioned, the church did receive tax exemption in 1993 because it was declared a bona fide religion, um, which seems to me to kind of show the problems of giving. The IRS, the job of deciding what's a
0: religion? It's It's a hard question anyway, but the IRS is particularly ill suited to answer it.
1: It seems that way. But also, as you mentioned, all new religions face existential crisis when the charismatic founder dies. Things were particularly hard for Scientology because in the mid 80s, there were a lot of challenges in the courts and in the press. Tell us about some of those challenges because although they did get their tax exemption in 1993, that was kind of the end of a, a troubling period.
0: Yeah, the 80s were really difficult for them because they went through a number of lawsuits and, and they lost uh, control of some significant material. Two things that I would point out. One was uh, in a suit that the church itself launched against a former member named Jerry Armstrong. Biographical material about Elron Ron Hubbard came to light that was completely opposed to the church's narrative and seemed to indicate that he had made up a considerable amount mm. of, of his life story. And that was very damaging to the church. And then in another case, the secrets of uh, Scientology's cosmology and its inner uh, uh, scriptural teachings uh, were all released in a court. A hearing, although Scientology tried to control that, you know, by – they had 1,500 members show up to get copies so that they would be the only people in line. Mm. Uh, The L.A. Times did get a hold of a copy and they published the secret story that Scientology relies upon about Xenu and the Mm -hmm. the galactic overlord that now has been so widely ridiculed on South Park and other things. But at that point, it had never been told in public. Mm. These were deep, deep secrets about Scientology.
1: As I said earlier, the third important figure in the book is Tom Cruise. The movie star is the most famous Scientologist. But the church has always been particularly interested in courting celebrities. Celebrities receive special treatment in the church.
0: Well, from the very beginning, the church was established in L.A., set up in Hollywood, with a goal of attracting celebrities. And in fact, they set up the Celebrity Center there. You know, know, the the, the naked ambition was clearly (laughs) on display. And in one of their magazines, they published a list of you know some of the candidates you know that they would be going after, like Walt Disney, you know, uh, Marlena Dietrich, uh, being you know just a, a long list of some of the most notable people in the entertainment and sports and political uh, worlds. And if you were able to bring one of these people in, they say a small plaque would be given to you. They did succeed in bringing in some of those celebrities. Uh, I went through the archives of Gloria Swanson, for instance, who was a great... Star of the silent screen, and then suffered a period of mm-hmm. neglect uh, before coming back in his triumph and uh, Sunset Boulevard. Right. But uh, you know, she was one of the early recruits. Uh, Rock Hudson came into the doors one day, and you know, uh, uh, he, he might have stayed longer except that his parking meter ran out, and the auditor wouldn't let him lo- leave the room, so he stormed out <laughs> in a in a huff. But many, many uh, well known. Hollywood figures passed through the portals of the church from the very beginning and continue to this day. The point of them is these are representatives that they can put to the public and say, look what we've done. Look who is a Scientologist. And they often have to make these public declarations, you know, especially when the church gets in trouble in one way or another, their celebrities come out and they defend the church. Mm -hmm. And it, It's very powerful. If you are a young person going into the entertainment industry, for instance, and you look at these titanic movie stars who have given their names over to this church, no doubt that makes an impression on you, and you might want to be like them. Mm. And you might think, there must be something there for them, so there might be something for me.
1: One of the striking things in your reporting is how often Scientologists report people who are close to them, their yeah. spouses, siblings, or longtime friends, for lapses of ethics, which results in them being punished. That's really, it seems like a very harsh system.
0: It's very harsh. And, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a, a story, for instance, um, a guy who was helping promote Battlefield Earth, the John, John Travolta movie that was considered one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, was based on one of L. Ron Hubbard's novels. And um, one of the my sources was, um, was so discouraged when he saw the movie, and he thought, why didn't anybody see this? Why didn't anybody help John, who's done so much to mm-hmm. help the church? And he mentioned that to his wife, and she turned him over to the ethics authority, and he was sent to a re-education camp. Uh, you know, th- this is not an unusual story. It's absolutely common. And the the fear that people have of confiding their true feelings is part of the sinister power of the organization to control your thoughts, you know, so you don't you try to keep yourself from even thinking mm-hmm. anything derogatory about the church or of David Miscavige or the founder L. Ron Hubbard.
1: So for my final question, in the epilogue you put Scientology in the context of other religions. It has significant commonalities with other what I think of as American yes. religions, Mormonism, Christian science, uh, the Amish culture, which I know is not exactly American, but mm-hmm. faith is a strange, often irrational thing. And in the newer religions, that strangeness often seems weird rather than awe-inspiring just because, of the, because they're new and we right. don't have this passage of time. But you do seem to think that Scientology is fundamentally different in some way.
0: It doesn't advertise itself exactly as a faith to start with faith is not a feature of Scientology you know it presents itself as a technology a spiritual technology and if you follow the precepts of Scientology will inevitably and successfully climb their spiritual ladder Mm -hmm. and eventually you will acquire all these powers that they talk about none of which have ever been exhibited It has obvious parallels with many—I mean, I think the relationship with Mormonism is interesting in that Mormonism was such a stigmatized religion in the 19th century, even more so, far more so than Scientology, although I think of Scientology as probably being the most stigmatized religion in Mm -hmm. America today back then, you know, Mormonism was seen as the most anti-American entity. It was trying to set up a theocracy in Utah. And, and uh, there was actually a bill in Congress to exterminate the Mormons. It wasn't to try to classify them. Uh, they were – people were very angry. But Mormonism changed. Mormonism evolved and it survived and it has prospered. Mm-hmm. Scientology might do the same thing. There is a reckoning. It has to take place inside the church. That hasn't happened yet. But if it does, it might survive. If it doesn't, it's going to fail.
1: That was Lawrence Wright, whose book Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Lawrence.
0: It was a pleasure, June. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andrew Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For slate.com, I'm June Thomas.